Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Wines of Bordeaux. Visit their website at Bordeaux.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We're good. We're good. We're live. Okay, sorry. I can't tell. This is like in the, this is this is the way we do radio here. <laughs> the engineer's backs to me here. Come on, this is this is how we work. Headphones. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, anyway, Michael Becker. Yes, food talk. So good show today. All wine. Um, Savio Suarez is my first guest. We'll be on with him in just a minute. And then I've got Erin Healy, who's a really young psalm who I met in Bordeaux during the 2015 harvest. She was working for Mark Forgione then, and now she's got a great gig working with uh, Jean Georges. So we'll talk about her new job, what that must be like, that seller of his. Uh, but first, we'll talk to Savio. But before that, before that, I want to give a shout out. And I should have written all this stuff down, but I didn't. So Joey Stefano emailed me last week to invite me to attend something, which is this Saturday night in Queens. So here's what I want you to do if you're, if you're like cheese, and you want to go to Queens this Saturday night. There's this great event taking place. If you Google like, a cheese event in Queens this Saturday, it'll come up. The um, He'll be there. Tia Keenan, who has a great new book out on the art of the cheese plate. Tia will be there with her book talking about cheese and cheese pairings. The guys from M. Wells will be there doing some food around it. And another really good restaurant. So there's going to be cheese, tons of wine, I'm sure, um, people playing with cheese, and it's in Queens. That's all I can tell you. I can't, I can't send you any more information, but you don't have a website. You, you Google all that stuff in there into a search engine, and hopefully it comes up, and then you can buy a ticket and go tomorrow night. So my first guest today, Savio Suarez, who I kind of met. He's an importer, Savio Suarez Selections, the name of his company. Um, and I kind of met him the same way I feel like I met Kermit Lynch and maybe Neil Rosenthal and Louis Dresner, which is through their wines. Like I would go to a store, buy a bottle of wine, take it home, have it in the glass and go, holy shit, this is good. Who is the importer again? And I spin the label around. And it just became – I found that I kept buying the wines from – Oh, a half a dozen to a dozen importers who just seem to have great portfolios whose tastes lined up with mine. So we had Savio on this show last season, right, Savio? I believe so. Last season. Yeah. We got his whole background. Great story. Born in Brazil, got into food early, parents cooked, really got into tasting and local. Developed a palate for that. Came to New York. Um, liked going out to clubs and dancing. To, so to support that, worked in the front of the house at restaurants. <laughs> Which was a great way to support going to clubs and dancing. Oh, of course. Um, and then it, there was like a marriage or two marriages. You went up living in Germany, I think, for a bit. That's right. And, and found yourself just traveling and meeting winemakers and getting kind of drawn into the life of the vineyard. That is true. That is true. Pleasure to be here. You know, hello to everybody. Hello to everybody. Yes. Yes. I, um, well, <sighs> eating and drinking has been a passion. <laughs> You know, word it's, here, me. It's we, like we music. I mean, I always, right. you know, to me, music uh, notes that note drive your spirit into a bliss is the same as the palate. Yeah. So notes as well that you know you're always going after. You, yeah. you know, I I tend to have a style of music that I listen in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. That is, this helps my day, creates the atmosphere. Yeah, it's the same and half of the brain, too. I same think. thing with food and wine, you yeah. know? I mean, I'm always thinking of what I'm going to eat today. And coming here, besides it's a pleasure to be here and seeing you, you know, I just finished a beautiful pizza here at Roberta's, you know, and washed it down with a delicious glass of one of my wines by the glass, a gamay by, by Jean-Claude Chanudet, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy now. Well, how can you not be happy with a Roberta's pizza and a glass of good gamay? That's right. That's about as good as it gets. Yeah, the pizza here. I mean, haters can hate. People can say whatever they want about this place. But I'll tell you what. The food's really, really awesome. solid. Awesome. And the pizza's addictive. It's like some of the best pizza I've ever had. 
And the atmosphere, you don't know. It's three o'clock in the afternoon, four Jeez. o'clock in the afternoon. It feels like it's midnight. Who are these people? You know, it's, it's happening. The it's music, packed. It's packed. I know. And you don't know what time of the day it is. I know. Or the night. I know. That's Roberta's. It's, yeah. it's, it's its own intoxication. Awesome. Also, that's New York, too. It's true, but Brooklyn has its own kind of vibe. I thing love going it. On. I, yeah, absolutely. All the totally kids are Brooklyn, out here. They Brooklyn love it. Brooklyn and it's it's the best thing that ever happened to New now, York. Now, where are your offices? You're in you're in Dumbo. Dumbo. That's what I thought. Yeah, it's not far from here at all. So, so talk. So you you got into wine. You're living in Germany. You're meeting small producers. You're meeting vignerons, and then you kind of get this idea of of opening the business. Well, I need to find a work. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I moved to Germany. I quit my job at Il Buco. I was the GM there, and uh, you know, you were at Buco. Il Buco. Oh, yes. she's great. Leonard is her last name. Yes, Donna. Donna Leonard. She's yes, great. That's absolutely such a good place. I love Il Buco. Absolutely love it. Um, I, I she's a curator, the and then she opened Elementaria around the corner on Great Jones, exactly. where, where they're killing it. Absolutely. Great baking program, great wine. Oh, Both those restaurants are spot I mean, on. They source incredible products yeah. and all to work with, and, uh, and everything else after that is very simple. I believe, yeah. you know, I uh, well, I moved to Germany because of nine eleven. So to make a, a long story short, and then uh, took a sabbatic year after that. You know, running out of money, you needed to figure something out. There's, at that time, there was no work in Germany either, and I could not because I could barely speak the language. So for me, you know, one day walk, walking around like I, I love to go, I love I love bookstores. I found this, you know, book on German producers, and I picked it up, and I started to email to you know to a, a hundred of them. I got sixty uh, replies, and I from that time on, I started to work with twenty five. Of uh, those producers as uh, an agent, and eventually I just became an importer two years later. So your early portfolio was exclusively Germany? was only German. Because you would never know that now. No. The selling German wine is like, you know, it's very difficult. It is, you Be, know, Riesling... Because the perception by the American public in yes, general? Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah. Because yeah. of the... Of the, of the, of the terrible negotiation wines that were were washed into the country here during the 70s and 60s and parts of the 80s. You know, Black Tower, Black Tower... Uh, Blue uh, Nun. Blue Nun. Yeah, uh, all that shitty leaf from it, which is the, terrible the wine. Zeller, Schwarze Katze, and all of that. Right. So, I mean, that is not really wine. That is a sweet thing, right. whatever Factory that is. Factory shit, some that, kind that, of... That would some kill you. Soda the, and wine. The alcohol and the sugar the next day, yeah. you'd, be, you'd be dead. Yeah. You know, so... That impression uh, is an annoyance, uh, definitely a limitation for the business. Everybody thinks that German wine is like that, and it's not. You know, you know the professionals, they adore, they love German wine. I'd never forget. I mean, years, I mean I've been in the city about right. as long as you have, and that Paul Greco was like one of the real early champions. Right. And he had that summer, summer of Riesling every year where he was giving out the free tattoos, and he was just a great proponent for that particular uh, varietal. Right, and, and then actually the most versatile wine, for sure. I mean, that and should have I mean, you, and the variety from from very dry to extremely the, sweet, yeah, and yeah. and uh, the styles and and the regions are so unique and so distinct, and all of that is wonderful. But from that on, immediately I went to France, and uh, you know I love French wine, and uh, even before anything else, I've always worked for French restaurants, and and was very easy for me to go around at that time. There was no. Uh, iPhone, so you do the 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 old 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 fashioned way, knock on doors, hang out at uh, local bars and bistros, and find out who's making wine of uh, of interest, of uh, you know, of some singular quality, not the sameness, you know. And then from there on, it was easy: Spain, Portugal, Italy, Slovenia, and and more to come. When did you start to? Hone in, because if, if if one goes to your website now and hits the About tab or one of those tabs that kind of has something that's edited a few paragraphs about what you're doing, there's a real emphasis now on organic viticulture or bio-viticulture or natural wines. I mean, some of these terms have been abused, so organic is a certification you have to pay for. Bio is more of sort of Steiner's a philosophy. Um but you know what I mean, that umbrella of natural mean. wines. I mean, that, that basically so, is you have So I want to read it. You had something on your website, and I wrote it down. So you have this. This is how you're kind of defining it, but in broad brushstrokes. No additives, preservatives, agents, cultured yeasts, 
filtration, I would add fining to that. And in some cases, when you can, zero SO2. Right. And that happens a lot, zero SO2 these days. But the most important aspect uh, is that the wine industry on our side and on the side of the consumer, I hope it is for sure, it's evolving in the most beautiful way. Uh, basically, the styles of wines that we drink today has changed a lot for the better, for uh, consideration on purity of flavors and even immense more so on health. Because we basically, uh, we have the option to drink just wine. The only hardest, the hardest part for the, for the liver, that would be the alcohol. No synthetic chemicals and no nothing that is strange to wine needs to be there. But for me, uh, we, we are really lucky to live the days that we live and, and, and to be part of this business, which is, to me, the absolute. It is the most, uh, the highest point of the wine industry. For me as an importer, uh, wine is important. But the winemaker is way much more important. Mm. I used to say the winemaker is way much more important than somebody that I get along with, somebody that I respect. And that philosophy developed into something, to me, even more beautiful, which is how is it that this guy that I like, that I buy his wine, really works? You know, one of the things that I noticed that now is part of what I do, of every new producer that I bring in, is, you know, the hands that are actually working out there in the fields, in the vineyards, are the same hands in the cellar making wine. Mm. So that link, that connection became extremely important. So because of the choices of viticulture, of agriculture, are of the most, of the highest importance to the quality of the wine. And then in the cellar, non-intervention and minimal manipulation is the result of the best wine we have right now. And that, to me, is the most important thing. And that's what I seek when I go out looking for new producers, is this practice. Yes, I, and I agree with you, and we'll talk about that in a little more depth in a minute. Yet, if, 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 you, know, if you don't live in, in, a, in a Manhattan or San Francisco or Chicago or an area that's blessed with really great stores, really great importers, great distributors, um, where you have ready access to this. I mean, for example, I've got friends that live in North New Jersey, not far from here, right? Cross the Hudson River, go in 10 miles, there's a lot of towns. And um, when I'd go visit them, I'd go into the small town liquor stores or which sell wines and just be flabbergasted. There was nothing there I wanted to drink. You don't need to go that far. You find a lot of that in uptown, uh, uh, east and west side, you know, on I the guess, upper I, east and I west guess, side. But, but I've been saying that, but you I know. don't know those because I know I, I know how to find my way to, yeah. to to discovery wines. I know that little guy on Elizabeth Street. I, right. I, and if I can go to Chamber Street, I mean, I shop at Flatiron. There's like five stores I go to because I, I, they don't have a bad bottle in stock. But you're so. But when you're talking about no, I mean, because wine's this weird thing where I'll, the wines we're talking about still only constitute. Under 5% of the wines being made on the planet today. Maybe even less. I think so. I mean, you could probably say 1%, 2%, 3%, <laughs> something like that. So the other 95 is a commodity. I mean, and there's hundreds of additives that you can – I mean, if you, from, the, from the industrial farming practices where they're fertilizing and they're spraying – so there's pesticides and there's fertilizers and there's nitrogen and there's who knows what copper, who knows what else they're spraying. Then they're bringing the wines in, SO2 right away to kill anything that's living on them, buying a commercial yeast, controlling the fermentation tanks with temperature, I mean, micro-oxygenation, uh, reverse osmosis. You can actually take a wine apart and put it back together again to get – so it's, 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 you know, a lot of what's out there is just an industrial product. Wine is a culture. You know, like you pick and buy your music. You want, you know, you go out and you buy music and you bring it home because you like music. Some people just don't buy music. They just listen to the radio. But, you know, we, we you know, we come from a culture that, you know, we have a lot of LPs in their back. I, I do. Have you, you know, <laughs> I've got and, two MAMS LPs and turntables. You know, I mean, and, and wine is the same thing. If you like wine, wine is not the same beverage. It cannot be. If you drink a wine and that is the same exactly flavor profile every year, there's something wrong with that. Right. There's something wrong with that because wine should not be that way. It will change and will reflect that growing season. So I, I personally 
as I said, we are lucky because we are part of that small percentage out there. I think New York, Chicago, um, very much California, L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, and Oregon, you know, Portland for sure, Seattle, even D.C., we're drinking great wines. I was very surprised for what I see in North Carolina and South Carolina very much. I was in Nashville, uh, very much interest and the growing interest for uh, natural wines of the style that we work with and uh, this is uh, very positive i after a trip to nashville my first ever now in october i was surprised by the quality of the food i had there and by a few wine shops let's say three out of 30 they were very similar to what we find here in brooklyn and the best in manhattan that carry uh this uh, style of wine. So I think it's growing and not, a, I don't think I'm, I, uh, that's a fact. There's more and more. And one thing that I also noticed, a lot of sums that were, uh, that worked in New York for many years are relocating. I just saw Fred Dexheimer, you know, Fred's an old friend exactly. of mine, young I mean, kid who's one of the early, earliest guys to pass his master psalm. Kids from Podunk, Pennsylvania, middle of nowhere, came to New York, was on the floor for Lauren Torrendale for years, got his master psalm. Now he's in like Raleigh, Durham or something. He is in Durham. He's, he's in, in North Dur- Carolina. It's crazy. Sure. crazy. Yes. Same thing. I, I, I went to visit uh, the market with my distributor, the person that I, I uh, represents my portfolio in a tenancy. And... There, I met people that used to buy my wine here, used to work for Café Boulou, for Gotham, etc., yeah. etc. Et so, uh, and they arrived there, and they're building a wine list with the same wines they had here. That's great. And that's awesome. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about the American food scene. Coast to coast, as you know, we live in this bubble in Manhattan, Br- Brooklyn, you know, this was a really frenetic restaurant scene. But there's so much talent that's passed through cities like ours or San Francisco. And they just want to go home and do something like what G- Gavin uh, Jason did, you know, Daniel Balud's chef to cuisine for many, many years at right. Cafe Balud. You know, just went home to wherever he is, Madison, and opened up what will be the best restaurant in that city. In and Madison. So, right. A lot of New Yorkers or who people who cut their teeth here, trained here, when, when, when the time came to settle down, maybe have a family, maybe the one of the You know, they, they go back to some hometown. And kind of just raise the bar with what the food's like there, and the same with the wine programs. Well, the, another another imp- important factor for me, from my point of view, is uh, that you know there's there are many new importer, importers popping up every day, or let's say at least one a month. And yeah, so, it's, true. it's interesting. So it's I've been around. Yeah. So I have the advantage, but also I decided to move to another direction. I started to expand nationally. So I've been traveling much more in the U.S. So I'm discovering the, West, the U.S. in a beautiful way. And you. by meeting these people that have a lot of experience in New York, you know, bringing that through other markets, it's fun and it's great. I believe, you know, Americans are very open. And they are more yeah. curious yeah. than other cultures that yeah. are traditionalists. So yeah. the 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 you know the, the the style of the culture here is like. Let me see what this is like. At least they are open to try. Yeah, that's and this true. works out. It's true. I, I have to say I couldn't agree more. I'm kind of a Europhile and a Francophobe and a Italian folks. I, I right. go to Europe all the time. And, and I, back in the day when I was cooking in the 80s and 90s, the food and wine there was so much better than what we were doing here. Now the pendulum swung. The ingredients here are astonishing. The viticulture change. Um, but but now when I go back there, like to your point, you know, if you're, if you're in Sicily and you want to drink a Nebbiolo or a Sangiovese, they look at you like fuck you. Yeah. you know, if you're in Bordeaux and you ask for they ask anything <laughs> except a Bordelaise wine, they look at you like no. I'm like, what are you talking about? Whereas in America, where our actually our, our wine consumption is, is going up every year, we're the, one of the only cultures that are drinking more wine per right, capita annually. Right. But we have this really expansive palate where we'll try. We we're not locked into orthodoxy at all. No, not at all. I mean, you you. I have friends in France. They only drink. French wine, and they only drink Specific Bordeaux, or right. some only drink Burgundy. They don't right. want to try anything else. Right. That's it. And that's a limitation. You know, also, I think a new trend, a new vibe in America, it has grounds to grow way faster than any other place. Maybe Japan has that, too. Mm. You know, that they take something that really adapts to them, and that goes crazy, spreads very fast. But not in Europe. No. In Europe, they're very traditionalist. Yeah. They're very limited. You know, this makes this market vibrant and wonderful to work at. At the same time, the possibilities. I don't think anyone else in the world is drinking the great wines that are available 
at most stores and most states here in the U.S.? I know I've got, you know, I, again, a lot of friends come in from Europe. We go out to dinner, and I'll order wine, and they'll be like, how? I can't buy that wine in my store in Paris. How, do you, how are you getting these wines? There's so many good vignerons if they have a single market that they want to target. It's the, the first market they want to be in is the United States, and the first market within the United States is probably going to be New York. This is a very important point. Uh, I have a lot of producers that I know that uh, 90% is export. And the other 10%, they sell to their friends that have a wine bar in Paris or nearby where they are, etc. So the French people do not benefit from that at all. Right. Or sometimes, or even the Italians, or, right. or, or, the, or the, the, the Spanish for that sake. And this is certain, something that I really know. Uh, for various reasons, they're not curious. And they will not buy because they don't know. The price is high, and you know, I mean, everything will apply to that. So they miss out on the new wine that has been produced out there by very vibrant, young, small grower that work passionately. You know, he spends a lot of time out there in his vineyards. From now, January, they start they start pruning, and this is when they start making the wine. And it's beautiful. To me, it's a pleasure, a privilege to be part of this, to follow, you know, this method and this work of these people building and, and creating this new image for the new wine that is here to stay. It's a natural, biodynamic, or organic, it doesn't matter. I must, I, again, I've said this on, this on this show many times, and everyone that knows me is tired of hearing it, but my palate in the last once... Once I discovered them, I kind of fell in love with the... There was something about these wines that was alive to me. A bottle of wine that I would open, pour into the glass, or maybe I'd decant it, and it would change over the course of an hour and a half. It seemed to change every 10 minutes. It was, you know, just a little this, a little that. The nose was a little bit different. The, the feel in my mouth was a little different. It was like having a conversation with a bottle of wine that I never felt wines were alive before. And then I, I got to talk. Did you go to the raw wine event? Of course. Uh, of course. Yes, so of course. I got to talk to Isabel before the event for a while. And and we were saying that, you know, when you go back to the wines that I kind of grew up drinking that were made in a, in a standard, you know, post, post-World War II way of harvesting the grapes, unfortunately, SO2 to kill what was ever on them. Absolutely. Using commercial yeasts. Yes. And then, you know, racking, fining, filtering. Basically, you have a bottle of wine. It could be very delicious. I mean, you two could get six great glasses at it, but it was kind of like mummified wine. It wasn't going to go anywhere. I mean, the only thing that would happen might be the tannins would soften over time. You know, well, the, that's that's the, that's the varietal, that's the, the region, that's the style. So that's but the wine and the mummification thing. I said that's like the perfect way to think of it. It's like they took something that was alive and then killed it and preserved the shit out of what was left of that corpse, and that's what you're drinking. Versus the wines today, and even to your point about fining and filtering. You know, I think about when I'm back in the old days when I was working the floor of restaurants. Roger Daggorn was one of my first sommeliers. I mean, back when nobody, I didn't know what a master som was in 1985. I had no idea. Right. He was. He and was. He had the little testavan around his neck. Exactly. And you think of the purpose of that testavan, that little silver cup, was in, in the old days, they would pour wine into it, swirl it around. It has those dimples because it would reflect light. So the wine had to be clear and clean and pure. And then I began to think, like, now in the modern times, like, why do we filter wines like this? Why are we finding out those lees and that bacteria? So much of that stuff is going to speak to me in the bottle six months, a year later, in the glass in terms of the terpenes and the esters and the texture of the wine. Why do we strip it out? Because that's how we used to That was judge. pleasure that was stripped out of the wine, as a matter of fact. Yes. Because, you know, every, every, every action, every processing, you take, take something. something from yeah. the wine. So I think that today the style is there. It's uh, nuanced wines. Uh, restraint, and balance, purity of flavors. I mean, some wines we drink, they express such a beauty uh, in, in flavors, in balance, in, in the whole experience. It's like you get so, you get enchanted. Yeah, no, I had you one. Know, it, it fills you with I, joy. I, I had yeah. a Cobb Franc last night from, I think it was from Chamber Street. Um, uh, just a little producer, uh, Anjou, and it was just such a pleasure. Like every every sip put us in my I decanted it, let it blow off a little bit because I you know, read a little bit about it. Um, you know, again, a bio wine, just 
completely minimalist, but just this wonderful expression of Cobb Franck that was silky and luscious and wonderful and soft and, and changed 20 times over the course of the hour and a half that I drank it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, the pleasure that we get from drinking wines like this is unspeakable. I, I, I go even beyond. As, with the, as we talk about what is biodynamics, biodynamics has to do with energy, right? With, uh, with uh, influences of, of everything that's around us. So we are human beings. We also influence with energy. Yeah. So I believe and I feel it sincerely, the energy of the winemaker in the wine. And no, then, I completely. There's something. Yeah. So is it, in, in Isabel's book on natural wines, right. which came out a couple of years ago, she talked about that French word uh, vivant. Uh-huh. About, there's something, and I've just the, once it, you capture it, right? You, once you experience it, you never right. lose that sense right. of life in a bottle. That these wines that we're drinking, that are these bio wines, yeah. some of them with zero SO2, just a pure expression of the fruit. They grow the grapes properly, crush them, let the fermentation happen with indigenous yeasts, let it go through mallow or not, whatever, whatever, and then bottle it most, most of the time barely filtered and not fined. You just have these wonderful expressions. of, of They're alive. Absolutely. I, I have the privilege of knowing the winemakers, mm. and some of them are very close to I spoke, I speak to them very often, so we have a real relationship. So when I open a, a, a bottle of their wine, I, I, th- th- there's so much of them in that bottle yeah. that I, I feel like I'm talking to them a little bit. I mean, I have a producer, uh, Frank Baltazar in Coronas. Frank is one man show. I mean, he's dealing, he's making the most beautiful wine. So 100% Syrah. 100% Syrah. And oh. now he's making the most beautiful wines. I mean, small batches, everything, old vines. And uh, he used to have only eight Demi Mui. You know, 600 liter barrels in his cellar. So that's not a lot of wine for, for a producer. But, you know, that, his wine is so beautiful. I'm so close to him. Mm. It's a person that I talk to constantly. He makes his wines. Now, he's making some of his wines for the past uh, three years. He started to experiment, but now that's, is, that is a fact without adding sulfites. The wines are so much better. The wines are so much more digestive. And a pleasure to drink lighter, nuanced, restrained, elegant, and and to me, which is really because one of my one of my criticisms a little while back of the Northern Rhone is it was going the other way, the other way, the other I way. Mean, you were getting modern. these Syrahs that were just getting bigger and tarrier and heavier and more extracted. And I just I'm, I I remember saying to my son because he's really into wine now. You know, I, I prefer Grenache in the for the most part. Right. You know, I prefer going in the Southern Rhone just because it's a much lighter style. Right. Syrah, uh, Grenache driven than those should not b- be big. I know it shouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, by by itself, Syrah is not this big burly grape. It's just it, that's the style. Yeah, but you know. Oh, to me, if I am, if I, if the weight, the weight of Frank's wine is Pinot Noir, which is crazy, which is Syrah, right? I mean, for me to to refer to a wine like this as very pretty, because it is, it's it's very very elegant. There's no weight. That is, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no pressure. So you and I, we, we're going to have to wrap it in a second, but I think it's funny because we're, you, I'm older than you were, but you know, not by a ton. And again, I kind of grew up in the restaurant business in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s were the eras. And back then, winemaking was maybe kind of that it's, I don't want to say it's worst, but it was being driven by points and Parker and scores. And it was all about over-extraction. And now that I look back on it, right. it was about a lot of alcohol, a lot of fruit. A, 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 the, a, the use of oak was uninhibited. And it was just. And now I found that my palate's just swung 180 degrees the other way. And I, just, I find those wines undrinkable. And it's impossible to go back. It's impossible. It's impossible so to I, go back. I keep this little list. I get this little, my little wine book from the year. Right, right. So I, I keep a list of these grapes that I'm, I fell in love with like over the last five years. Pella Verga from, 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 the, Piemonte, from, yeah. from Piemonte, which is yes. a wonderful thing. Schiava, Ruque, yeah. Cherizuolo, Grignolino, of course, Pinot Noir, Pinot Doni from, uh, from the Loire. Right. Of course, Gamay, Norello Mascalese right. from Italy, right. uh, Frappato. Of course. Just these wines that are direct and fresh yes. and work with food. Yes. Right? I mean, that's where And, I and they keep coming up. There's more. There are more and more grapes coming out. I just have a wine now that is produced uh, in the part of Tuscany that is more Ligurian than Tuscany, mm-hmm. next to Carrara. It's actually a blend of uh, Sangiovese and Masareto. I had never heard of Masareto before. Me neither. And it's, the wines are, again, beautiful. It's restrained, nuanced, elegant, 
nothing nothing massive something that you can have with a delicious radicchio salad with beets and mm. and walnuts if you want right you know right. and uh and that's the beauty of that you know uh there are a lot of happening in each country not just in europe but also here in the u.s and yeah. other countries about autochthonous grapes everything is original We don't need to be drinking Cab Sauvignon or Merlot from Tuscany anymore. Right. I know. Please. I mean, yeah. Somebody makes it. We need another drop of, like, you know, world-styled Chardonnay. Super like Tuscan. Exactly. Right. If I drink one more Oki Tuscan from I – mean, I was in Sicily, and I yeah. went to Planeta, and they showed me – and I'm like, you know, I really like it. But why are you making this? Like, why does the world need another drop of this stuff? I mean, the next thing to me somehow in Piemonte that is, that is producing – Interesting wines that have a different style is Roero. Mm. Roero is not like Alba or Barolo. The wines, the soil is way lighter, so the wines have a completely different profile. And I'm very much in, in love with the RNAs yep. and with the Nebbiolo from these regions in the hands of biodynamic producers. And Nebbiolo is another one of those grapes that can be, uh, it, it, can, it can be big like a bocello or an upright bass. Absolutely. And it can be like a harpsichord. Absolutely. It, depending on what Absolutely. soil type, what elevation, yeah. how you want to handle it, it's yeah. a crazy grape. Absolutely. We're gonna, next, we're going to get you in in the spring. Um, it would be a pleasure. Thanks so much. I, my, my guest, as you know, this, this show is one of those shows you tune into. It's you, great to be here. Great to be you here. Savio Suarez, if you see his wine, Savio Suarez Selection, get them. He's one of my favorites. You know, him, Zev, Jenny and Francois, Louis Dresner. Uh, there's a bunch of them out there. I think that uh, Severine Peru actually has their own importing company now. Speaking of, that's you know, right. They, they, it's the Somme from Ten Bells is beginning right, to bring in right. their own. But yeah. I, I love them all. Their wines are wonderful. They're just great to explore. Thanks so much, Savio, for Pleasure to in. be here. And Have a great see Christmas, again, and, Hanukkah, and, New Year's. We'll see you. In 2017. Happy holidays. Yes, stay tuned. We're going to have Erin Healy in. She's now the Summit John George. She's great. She's smart. She's young. She's all about it. So stay tuned for that. And she's going to blind taste me Bordeaux. Wow, I can't wait. Folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-'80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, The Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I, I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their family's moved here, so there's Colavita is living in Rome. Colavita is living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. So when you think of the great wine regions of the world historically, I mean, you're, you're going to be led back to Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, okay, maybe Piedmont, Italy, too. And as a chef growing up, boy, if you were working in great restaurants in the 70s and 80s, they were mostly all French, and we grew up drinking Bordeaux and Burgundy and Champagne with impunity. Well, fast forward to today, and I just, just got back from the 2015 Bordeaux harvest. We were there for a week with a bunch of sommeliers. It was so much fun, and I'll tell you, This isn't your grandfather's Bordeaux. There's a whole new generation of young vignerons working with this great terroir that they've lived on, this soil that they know that they've grown up with, and the great varietals that we all know and love, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot, Malbec. You know, this, this style of Bordeaux now that's younger, that's fresher, that's meant to be consumed now and not cellared, because honestly, which of us has a cellar? And who wants to buy a bottle of wine and wait 10 years? So... The Bordeaux whites are amazing. Uh, you know, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, like, hello, two grapes that we know. The reds tell all sorts of different stories from the left bank style that are a little more Cabernet Sauvignon driven, a little more structured right bank, a little more Merlot, a little easier, um, a little more upfront friendly. But 
If you haven't thought about drinking Bordeaux wine, give it another shot. For $15 to $35 in that price range, which is my price range, there's tremendous value in there. So if you're walking past a Bordeaux wine, stop, grab a great bottle. These are some of the most food-friendly wines on planet Earth. Hey, folks, welcome back. I guess I shouldn't call this show Food Talk if we're just going to talk about wine the entire hour. But, but what the hell? That's what we're doing. Anyway, so it's back. We're back. We're back. We're back. We're back. Um, Ernie was my guest. She's been on the show before we met in September of 2015 in Bordeaux. I remember because that's where we were. We were there for the same reason. She was with Patrick Cappiello and his band of young, brilliant American Psalms from all over the country. Erin um, was part of the New York contingent, the New York team. Yes, indeed. Um, and what struck me most about, well, we were there for the harvest and to taste the wine. It was a great year. 2015 was a great year. All the vineyards were happy. The weather was fantastic. Um, and Patrick was kind of trying to showcase Bordeaux wines to like a young generation of Psalms because a point I've been making for years is that Bordeaux, I think, sort of blew it in the 90s and early aughts by just kind of forgetting the American market and selling to China or wherever the hell they were selling and, you know, not getting value wines out there because the first growths are so expensive. Who can really drink them? But what was impressive was all these young psalms, like, how the hell do you know this much about wine? And you're like, you were like 23 then or 24 or something. You were 24, yeah. You were a kid. And then I got you on this show and you told me like, it was a great story, like the whole bio about your military kid, dad yeah. traveled. Yeah. You ended up going to college in Scotland. Dublin. Dublin. And then they didn't have, like, sororities, but they had clubs, and you joined the wine club. Indeed. And got to travel, because as everyone knows, if you've been to Europe, like, it's kind of easy to get around with, like, a Euro pass, and yeah. you can just kind of hop, skip, and jump. You can cross borders. Maybe back then you needed a passport, but it's gotten easier. Well, It doesn't get any better than being an 18-year-old American in Europe, being able to drink wine and eat food and travel around. Correct, because the drinking age is, like, 15, or if there is one, if it's even enforced. <laughs> But And then you studied. I mean, you got your SOM certification. You were like 21, and you were like living out west just studying, studying, studying. No, so I, I actually waited. I, I worked for the State Department in between. You did? I did. I wanted Doing to be what? a 007 agent. I wanted to be like James Bond 2.0, the female version. Okay. What's, you can still do that through wine, though. You can fool everybody. <laughs> Everyone thinks it's Ernie the SOM, and then it turns out that you're packing, and you've got a concealed carry permit, and you've got two black belts. And you, explosives, never know. and you can defuse bombs. You never know what's under that blazer. You never do know. Uh, you were working for Mark Forgione then, and then in the last... I mean, I, I know you from Facebook. This is like the weird way we all know each other now, sort of. It's like, oh, look. And I remember asking you, like, because you had all these posts about, like, Erin in the kitchen or something. What does she make? Why are you making nudie at home in Connecticut? Like, what is it's this? It's like thing? my yoga. It's, Apparently, because you do some badass shit. I'm like, are you, more, did you... I remember asking you once, like, did you switch from front of the house to back of the house? And I hope not. I have to give so much credit to to my chefs at Forge because we would go out for beers after work or just be hanging around. And I always have been super interested in the culinary side of things, but I just enjoy it as a process. Like it's the kind of thing like writing a menu and doing prep and cooking and making a sauce and then serving it and plating it is something very therapeutic for me. Like my mom's a yoga teacher and has been trying to get me to do yoga for forever and it's it's not gonna happen. I I've tried. I just can't I can't get out of my own head. But for some reason I can turn it all off when I cook. Good. So well, that's something most chefs have in common too. Like so, we all just got into it because we just love the process of it and so, I mean, I would just go in. I'd be like, I'm having trouble staring. Uh, Chris Zavita, if you're listening, will laugh at me because he used to make fun of me because I would take pictures of my seared scallops, and he'd be like, that's a terrible sear. And I'm like, well, you need to teach me how to sear a scallop. But they were so supportive of just helping me technically. And I feel like, you know, when I go home, I learn and I grow. And it's just been it's been something that I do on the side, but I, I just love it. Well, you spent the summer cooking, apparently, because your Facebook pages were full of, like, really, like, technical-looking restaurant-style shit at home. Always on the grill. And then, always on the grill. And then you were in, you, you traveled a lot, too. You were all over, you were in Italy, Burgundy, where were you? Where's your I summer? was in, I went back to France. You did? Um, I, I did an exchange in Champagne when I was 16, and my parents there, I really like my second parents, so... For me, it was very important to go back and, and see them after after four years, but also to go back and revisit my friends all over the country. So uh, I took my parents to Bordeaux, actually, for their 30th wedding anniversary. And uh, we went back to the Le Flacon. And Where they must know you on a first-name basis. I, you, know, you know, Gilles Arin and I have a, a constant text, uh, <laughs> text, text relationship. Um, and I, I went and I revisited some of the places that we were all at uh, last year, 
uh, Guillaume from Chateau d'Armagnac des Armes in in Sauternes blind tasted me on every vat and every barrel, which was really fun. How but cool is that? We were there. All all the wines that I was tasting out of the vats were the things that he was harvesting when we were there last year. So that was a really cool process for right. me to, to connect. And it was the same thing at Chateau Le Puy. They all the barrels that I tasted out of last year were being bottled the day that I was there. So they literally put a bottle under the the machine and pulled it back out, and we tasted the wines that I had tasted out of barrel. And the same thing with what they were harvesting the year before I got to taste the juice of the grapes that we saw last year. So it was it was a really interesting process for me as a, as a sommelier, because how often do you get to go back every year and do that process like a winemaker does? You don't. So it was it was really special, and everyone was so unbelievably generous, and they're so incredible out there. I, I really appreciate everything that, that they do for me and, and for my family. And, and then you're... On the floor, John George. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm a new guest John George. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, so do you do both rooms? Yeah. Uh, so I am currently full-time in Nougatine and then help out in the room. Well, good, because I'll see more. I mean, I don't eat at John George proper much, but I kind of like always like that front room because it's such a good value. I mean, it's the same kitchen, slightly different menu, but it's not as expensive, not as committed. I don't think that's – is there a dress code in John George? Yes. And yes. there is. Yes. Uh, but there isn't one in Nougatine. Coat required. Yeah, see, that's why. That's why. I, but you still can't wear shorts in nicotine. I don't really wear shorts after September anyway. <laughs> I know I live in Cape May when I'm not here, but down by me they wear shorts all year long. You know, it's it's a really it's a really fun setup because um, the wine list is the same over the whole restaurant. So how's the cellar? It's crazy. It's insane. It's insane. It's insane. We opened a, a bottle of 1945 Chateau Latour. Uh, I believe it was last week. <sighs> Out of the cellar. Did somebody order it? or Someone ordered it, yeah. they. So you had to taste... I mean, you never know. Well, you, you know, we taste Everything. pretty much every bottle we open because right. it's it's quality control yep. at that point. I watch Pascal, I watch you. I mean, everyone, every good psalm worth their, his or her... Right. So they has to. And Pour it in a glass, give it the nose, what's an organoleptic, what's it look like, let's taste it, spit, good, good it, to go. If it's a bad bottle, you know, we don't we don't want it to hit the table right. because it's, it's all about, you know, making sure the customer gets... We know exactly what they they want and what and what they're ordering. And if it's cooked or, or corked, then it should it should never be there. Um, you know, obviously, like no one's perfect and everyone makes mistakes. But uh, you know, generally, if if we can catch it, then it's and so. It's how was there. the forty five Latour? It was perfect. Unfing believable. It, you know, we opened three bottles of forty five that week. We opened four. so customers like who are these balls? Well, can I ask it's, what the price is on the menu? Is it like under three thousand dollars or something? No, or? it's more than three thousand. Yes. Was it Donald Trump's table? Was it Mitt Romney? No. Okay, because no. he was there. Did you wait on them? Were you here that night? Uh, they, I was there that night. Oh God, I'm not even. Let's not even. I sorry, I even mentioned uttered the name. Sorry. Um, no, it. They were extremely polite customers. Um, you know, I actually have a lot of respect for the Secret Service. They were extremely nice gentlemen and they have to do a job and they worked with us very they worked very hard to make everything right work with us sort of normal as it could possibly be as as it could possibly be yeah um so the wine list of john george is is international with a focus on france big focus on france definitely i mean we're a french restaurant and uh we've got quite a bit of alsace oh he's alsatian uh yes um and very heavy on bordeaux and burgundy Okay, so we still so what? What did that forty-five cost? I mean, are we allowed to say that? It's on the wine list. No one can go and look, right? It's on the sneaky list for rich people. Is it, it over five grand? Yes. All right, I'm done. Okay, on another note. So speaking of five thousand dollars wines, today you you have a challenge. We're yes. laying down a gauntlet, Michael Meko, because you guys have heard. Well, you've never. I've never been in a restaurant. We were on the floor because I, I had never made it to Forgione, and I don't go uptown much. But I'm gonna, I'm, we're going. You're going to see me at John George. I'm going to text you. I work out every day at the Athletic Club, so I'm like around the corner. I, just, I gave you enough flack for not coming in the Mark Forgione. You know it's going to be even more flack if you don't come see me I at have JG. To come, I have to come <laughs> see you at John George. So today's challenge is this. We have one, two, three, four, five, six glasses of a red, a mystery red wine, yep. but we know they're from Bordeaux. Yes. We don't know if it's left bank or right bank, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to go out on a limb and guess, unless it's really obvious, whether they're left bank or right bank. Cab driven or Merlot driven. The question, the cha- my challenge is to figure out w- what the price of each wine is. Price point, yes. Price point of each wine. All right, so let's start. Um, yes. Where should I start? Because you want to, I don't so want to confuse is, it. The glass towards you is one and it's going to go backwards. Okay, all right, so this is glass number one. Yes. All right, all right, here we go. And you're going to have to talk while I'm tasting, otherwise we have so, dead air in the radio. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing that I, I think is so important when talking about Bordeaux. And price points is that mm. you know even even a wine list like my wine list doesn't do any favors for 
for people's perception of of what Bordeaux is actually putting out. Um, you know, these these first gross, second gross, classified gross, whatever, um, that are on the auction market and on the unpremier market that, you know, you see in these movies like Red Obsession or that you talk about them in the new documentary Spoiled Grapes on Netflix. Um, Have you seen that? It's great. Is it great? It's, it's, Maybe watch it it's well worth watching. Um, I really I really enjoyed it. Uh, it is, is that, what's that about? It's about the fraud. Uh, the fraud. I yeah. saw it already, actually. Yeah, it was really good. That's a crazy story. You know what I really appreciate them talking about is why those wines are priced like they're priced. And the the interesting thing is that, you know, you see a wine list like that, and everyday Bordeaux wines are sitting right next to classified growths with a lot of zeros behind them. And how do you distinguish between the two? And one of the biggest questions I get um, at Nougatine when I'm, when I'm working is people go, oh, well, is it really worth that much money or why does it cost so much? And a lot of those wines, especially when they have three zeros after them, is the thing is, is that you can't even treat them like regular wine anymore because they're a part of a whole different thing. They're a part of a... Supply and demand. It's like the fine art market. Yeah, it's like supply. I mean, it's almost like supply and demand. There's not a lot of it made. I mean, why do these California cabs cost what they cost? Why? even, Even beyond that is that it's, it's not even a supply and demand market like an allocation market because, I mean, there can be a highly allocated wine that that demands a certain price, but with three zeros behind it, that's not just an allocation issue. Yeah. Something like the 45 Bordeaux, you should or 45 Latour, you should treat like a Picasso in that sense. It's going to be on an auction market. It's going to be in a private cellar, and people trade wine of that category like the fine art. Um, so you really can't can't think of it in the same category as normal the the normal wine market. It's a it's a completely separate entity, and I think when you think about it that way, it's less scary. Um, yeah, and, I don't drink. I mean, who who? I guess at John George you see those. Let me see wine number two if you don't mind. Yes. Wine number two. Wine number two. All right. So keep going. Keep going. I love listening to you talk about wine. And I've got to taste, and I can't taste it all at the same yeah. time. So it's right. it's just something that that I think for Bordeaux. For a very long time, it was something that was unaccessible. It was something that the the price points on wine lists scared people, and these huge flights that you see with just tons of zeros. It just people don't even want to look at that section of the wine list because it's intimidating, or make you know whatever it does to people's perceptions. It's intimidating. It's um, bloody intimidating. Though that being said, I think it's changing. I think. Uh, things like the Spoiled Grapes documentary really helps people understand when they when they lay it out so plainly like that. Um, helps people understand why those prices are what they are and kind of make people focus on the things that are maybe a little bit more accessible. And I think, you know, the CIVB is doing a really, really good job of... What's the CIVB? The Bordeaux, wine, the Bordeaux Wine Council. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, is doing a, a really great job of, of bringing the 97% of wine that is produced in Bordeaux to the forefront versus the 3% of the classified gross that participate in on Premier and, and end up costing so much more due to the, the market that's been created there. Um, Those damn Bordelais. They did it to themselves. <laughs> However it happens, it's, it's one of those things. You know, and Number three. It's business. It's, it's business. It is what it is. And we should talk about this is something weird. All right. Because this only exists in Bordeaux. It's only even on Premier. So in Bordeaux, somehow it became a tradition years back for these the big winemakers to work with negociant, which is their own little animals, yeah. right? Yeah. And they would take a harvest. Like the, we were there for 2015. So I get invited. I went to the on Premier twice. So I get invited every year from all. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't go anymore because I don't get it. Um, you know, for me, tasting wines out of the barrel that are six months old makes no sense either. But that's me. But the idea is that they they invite all the press. They invite a lot of people. And you're tasting barrel samples of wine that may or may not be what they bottle eventually in terms of blends anyway. You're tasting barrel samples of wine six months after the harvest. But a lot of the wines sold at that point. Yeah. So they're getting they're getting paid before like way before these wines won't be released for two years and change. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. but it only exists in Bordeaux. It's it's a very interesting and unique system, and I think it it spiraled out of control based on the nature of the system. But I don't think anyone ever in, 
intended it for it to get to what it is today. The, the beast that it is. You today. know, it's it's capitalism and and the you know how how those those auction markets work and and I, to be perfectly honest, it's like way above my head when it gets into like serious numbers. I was terrible at economics class, so for me, it's a beast of its own. But it definitely was its own. It was its own upcoming and it, its own downfall at the same time. Um, but you know, those wines are are incredible and they they have history and and you know, for me, like tasting that 1945 Chateau Latour and the fact that it was perfect bright and fresh and alive oh it was it's not brown it's not it leafy it's so in, crunchy that's and crazy delicious. that's crazy but then you think 45 if you go back i mean just as a snapshot we just had savio here back in 45 this was before this was before fertilizer this was there was these yeah. were natural yeasts i mean this was yeah. kind of like winemaking that we're swinging that we're calling now non-interventionist but really pre-world war ii that's kind of how everyone was making wine well and you know like can I get wine number th- uh, four? Oh, there's, three, there's just three wines. Oh, there's just three wines. So oh, you yeah. have... Okay, damn, girl. Okay, sorry. So you poured six glasses. All right. That would have really made me look bad. But, you know, it's I, I, I don't I don't like to, to downplay those wines because they are great and so many... And they age so well and you taste those iconic vintages. And it's really an ethereal experience when you taste those wines. That being said, I wouldn't be able to taste those wines if I didn't do what I do. Uh, so... And well, and well, and well. You wouldn't have gotten a job at John George if you weren't a star kid. So, you know, it's it's just one of those things that, for me, I, I really revel in the history of it and the opportunity to taste those things and how great they really are. But in everyday life, you have to, like, take a step back and understand that, that that's not the everyday for most people. And so I appreciate them for what they are. But when I'm picking wines for my dinner parties or on my dinner table, I'm going to take a totally different approach, which is why we're here. Um, All right. So I'm ready to go. I've got to fire away here. <clears throat> so I've got to pick. <clears throat> I've got to pick the um, most expensive, least expensive, middle price wine. Yes. Okay. All right. Drum roll, folks. Here we go. One last time. We're sniffing away here. We're doing this. We're just getting our second thoughts out of our head. All right. I think. I think. I'm kind of torn between one and two. I thought three was the least expensive. That's my guess. My guess is three is the least expensive. That could be wrong. It seems like it's mostly Merlot. Doesn't seem to have much oak on it. There is oak. There is oak, but not much. So three is the least expensive. Um, We're on a timetable here, Mike. Got to make a decision. Yeah, I know the master songs. What do they get? Twenty six minutes for six glasses. <laughs> that must be fucking torture. The whole fucking world ends on hinge. And then last year there was sixty three people took the test and two passed. Yeah, it's it's. An, I only want to think about that shit. All right, I, I'm thinking one that costs the most money, two's in the middle, three's the least expensive. Well, you were right on one end. Jesus. That's so nice. the wine number three is the uh, Chateau Trocart. It's 2010, and it's $20 a bottle. Okay, so there I'm right. So that wine is Merlot predominant with Cabernet Sauvignon and That's Cabernet Franc. My note says Merlot, least expensive. Least expressive oak. Okay, that was number three. Yeah, it's seventy percent Merlot with fifteen Cabernet Sauvignon, fifteen Cab Franc. Uh, but to be perfectly honest, this wine is delicious. very smooth. Yeah, it's delicious. It's full body and it's classic. It is what people think of when they think of Bordeaux. So the first wine. So I'm getting like black fruit and bramble and these integrated kind of soft tannins. It kind of had me in the right bank, to be honest with you. I don't know why I thought it was the most expensive, but I did. Well, you. you you're on the left bank still, uh, but, really, but that being said, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head with the soft tannins because we do have the 2005 Chateaubriette, so ah, it is 05, also great vintage. Merlot predominant. Okay, so I'm, I don't feel too bad. Hey, I, mean, I kind of sensed that was mostly Merlot, that those high-toned fruit notes, and again, that sort of black fruit and exactly. soft, silky tannins. What's that go for? It's 48% Merlot, 40% Cabernet Sauvignon, 9% Cabernet Franc, and 3% Petit Verdot for $33 a bottle. And for 05 Bordeaux that's drinking well, I, I think it's a, I think it, that's a great... It's a great price. 05, great price. 05 is a solid year. It was delicious wine. Yeah. So what's the big, what's the big gun number two that I fucked up on? So do you think it was right or left bank? I 
I thought this was more Cabernet. I, I felt like the second one had more Cabernet Sauvignon. And I was oh. even getting... Really, I did. I don't know why. I did. So I'm totally fucking wrong with that. And I was actually getting... I was actually almost getting that weird, like, that piercing you get from Cab Franc, like that peppery thing. And I'm well, so we all wrong. have bad days, Mike. Fuck me. <laughs> so it's... Um, this is the Chateau Le Pont. Okay. God it's Pomerol. Pomerol. So predominantly so that, right, that, Merlot with right. Cabernet Franc. So you did get the Cabernet Franc on the net. I did get the Cab Franc. And, and why do they say that iron... That, like, that... Pomerol, you got iron in the soil there. Yes. So you almost sometimes get like a... You've got an iron pan under the clay, so you get right? that kind of bloody... Right, like you get like organ meat, like you'd get from like liver yep. kind of, which is a weird thing from wine, but I remember like that's one of the sort of weird notes with Pomerol. Yeah. Oh, well. I guess I... You know what? I mean, all I can say is I've got to go back to Bordeaux because i got to brush up. I mean, i got one out of three, sort of, like one and a half because i got the varietal on the other one. But I think we just have to get us. I think we all have to go back to Bordeaux. I think we should all go back together. Stay in that same hotel, and go out to dinner every night, and then and the night at Flacon, Flacon, whatever it's called, with that kid with the Instagram account. Yes. What's that kid from the West Anthony. Coast? Anthony. Anthony Vales Kalen. Holy shit. That kid is incredible. Yeah, they were all. You guys were so fun. I was stuck with. Did you see him when he was in New York? He was in New York a couple weeks ago. No, I didn't <laughs> see him. I didn't see him. No. And Max so, Max was in New York a couple weeks ago too. So what does the last bottle cost? The last bottle is $45. Well, that's not, I mean, for what it is. It's yeah. delicious. It's, it's really nice. I think it's definitely that classic Pomerol. It's still got a little bit of that, that like, tannic structure that you, you want from Bordeaux to cut those fatty meats like, you know, ribeye or, or pork. Um, especially, you know, things like ribeye, pork, uh, you know, things like that during Christmas season. If that's what's on your Christmas table, like, these are really perfect wines for... For the we'll holiday season. Post these wines on the website. We'll do that for shoppers out there because they're all, I guess, they're re- relatively available. Yes. In stores yes. near. So, how did you just, for quick, in the last minute or two, how did you, the job at John George, how'd you hear about it? I'm just curious. Like, how's that work? Um, I just sent somebody an email asking uh, if they were hiring. Like the old fashioned, like the old knock fashioned on the door. Way. Yeah. And you just happened to get them at the right time when they were looking? Yeah. It really was was that perfect timing dynamic. And so the interview, so you come in and they just kind of want to get to know you. So how does that work? You know, because I, I don't know how the whole song. This is too personal. I just don't, don't know how the whole song thing works. Like with chefs, it's like you know resume, and then you get referred by your chef to another chef, and you know. I'm I'm so grateful to be a part of the team there. It's such an, an incredible group of people, and and I what I really respect about the company as a whole is they really want people um, with the right mindset. They want people with the right attitude and who work well with others and who have a really team spirit. Mm. And you can really tell that that's, you know, a, 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 something that they look for in people because it feels that way. It's, it's an incredible team. And like I did my staff training, my Bordeaux staff training yesterday morning. And it's really fun to have people from back of house and people from front of house all sit around the same table and all be super excited about what you're doing as a team. That's great to hear that you're doing that, too. Because I remember when Mike Madrigal was up at Bar Balloud, he would have distributors come in, I think, on Thursdays or Fridays, and they would blind taste everybody. Yeah. There was no kitchen staff, but they would blind taste everyone in the dining room, from, like, the runners to the bussers to the... I mean, and everyone had, like, an opinion, so it's kind of great to sort of democratize the world of wine. Absolutely. Congratulations, man. Thanks. Team John... I mean, he's... He's just, I, I, when he first came to New York, he was at the Drake Swiss Hotel, and I was at the Maurice under Delouvrier, and we all kind of, who is this guy, man? He just came in, because back then New York was so so different. There wasn't that many restaurants, and you know, he was coming in, he was a big wig, and he got three stars from the Times. Um, and his cooking was so different. We went to eat at that, I, we all went to eat at the, at the Drake. And, like, you know, this guy had this really, I mean, you could tell he had been to Asia. He had this really light aesthetic. The sauces weren't reduced. He was using a lot more broth. It was just so, and he's just, he has been, like, a beacon since then. This is, like, a 30-year yeah. career where he's just been spot on. He, he's incredible, and he's, he's always there, too. If he's in New York, he's there. And it's, it's really amazing to, to work at the flagship where he's there all the time. It's, yeah. it's a whole different energy when the person who, I, who created it all is yeah. still present and active and right. which he which he is in everything that we do yeah lives downtown lives in the village and he's up there all the time i know it's so great i mean he's he's a chef chef i have nothing but respect for the guy and i have never filmed there which is crazy so maybe now that you're there we'll see if we can't get tv cameras in for the pbs series oh yeah that'd be great we should do that because then i can get you on the floor too and get you 
with a microphone or stick a mic at your camera. Thanks for coming on. Erin Healy's been my guest. Erin Healy can be found on the floors of Nougatine and John George most any day. Um, she's great. She, you're like 26, 7 now? I'm 25 still. Fuck me. She's I'm almost like a 26 baby. This is crazy. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I remember coming home from that trip and trying to describe the trip and saying, you know, I, like, I birdwatch because I live in Cape May, and, like, it's, like, one of the greatest birdwatching places in the world because they just all come through. So, and I said, it's, like, weird. It's, like, it's like discovering, like, a new species of bird that, like, no one saw before. Like, yeah. who are these 22-year-olds and all this shit about wine? And, they, and there was, like, a busload of you fools. And you're, like, all over. Yeah. I know. It's so cool. God bless. That's great. Thanks for coming Absolutely. on. Absolutely. All right. Stay great tuned, folks. Next week's the last show of the season. We'll be back on in January, and I've got three guests to talk about. I don't know what, food safety and some other stuff. Three guests next week, though. So it's going to be a bing bang, 20 minute, 20 minute, 20 minute chill. Thanks, Erin Healer, for coming out. Let's raise a glass. We'll raise the expensive glass to Bordeaux. Cheers, Mike. Thank you. Great to be here. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.